The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning. I want to welcome you all to worship. My name is Meg McGuire and I am the ministerial intern here at the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco this year. And I want to welcome especially any of you who are joining us for the first time today. You can download an order of service so that you can follow along throughout worship on our website or in the description of this video. And I hope you'll also consider joining us after worship for our Zoom coffee hour, where you can connect virtually with others from this community in small groups. I wanna take a moment to offer up my gratitude to all of the people who were instrumental, essential in bringing this service together this morning. Our worship associate, Dennis Adams, Jonathan Silk, running AV and sound and so much more to Eric Shackelford on our camera this morning, and Joe Chapeau, who is monitoring our chat and social media. Our sexton this morning, Thomas Brown, to Vanessa Holm and Derek Silverman, who crafted and recorded so many of our musical offerings this morning, and to Leandra Ram, Brielle Marina Nielsen, Ben Rudiat Gold and Asher Davidson who lead us through some of the musical staples of our worship. Our music director Mark Sumner for all of the crafting and curating that went into making all of those offerings possible. I want to thank Alex Dar and his team who are leading our Zoom coffee hour, hosting it after the service, and Carrie Steele Salazar for the beautiful flowers that you're looking at. I want to thank, as always, our senior minister, Reverend Vanessa Rush Southern, for her support and leadership that make every Sunday possible, even when she isn't here with us in the building. And I want to extend our gratitude, especially this morning, to our beloved organist, Reiko Odelaine, whose birthday is tomorrow. Happy birthday, Reiko. I also want to acknowledge all of you who are joining us virtually via our live stream this morning by lighting our blue candle. As we have each week since March, and with the kindling of that flame, we bring your spirits into this space until such time that we may be here together again. So I'm so glad that we're here this Sunday after Thanksgiving, many of us with bellies full of leftovers, many of us with hearts full of gratitude for the ways that creativity and technology enabled us to safely gather this year. Many of us also holding sorrow after a challenging year and a very deeply changed holiday that left many of us physically separated from community and loved ones. And many of us grieving too the complex and troubling origins of the Thanksgiving holiday. So we begin this morning holding all of that together. And as we begin, let us pause first in recognition that this religious community and this city where so many of us make our home rests on the ancestral territory of the Rhinotush Ohlone. 
May we hold that discomforting truth that we live and work and gather together on the sacred lands of others, not by coincidence, but as a result of the systematic dispossession of people from their land. And may we make this acknowledgement as one small way that we might begin to tell a different story, one small way that we can embody a commitment to transform the legacies of colonialism through concrete acts of solidarity, healing, and repair. And in the spirit of such, such concrete action, I want to let you know in advance that our offering this morning will be taken for the Segorite Land Trust. The Segorite Land Trust is an urban indigenous women-led trust based in the San Francisco Bay Area that facilitates the return of indigenous land to indigenous people. And Segorite envisions a Bay Area in which Ohlone language and ceremony are an active, thriving part of the cultural landscape, where Ohlone places and names and history are known and recognized, and where intertribal indigenous communities have affordable housing, social services, cultural centers, and land to work, live, and play on. I'm so grateful that we're able to support them in that vision this morning. And I am so grateful to be here in community with all of you as we ground ourselves in gratitude, harvest the best of this season, and consider how we might transform what no longer serves us. So from wherever you find yourself, let's sing together our first hymn of the morning. It is hymn number 325, Love Makes a Bridge. You can find the words and the music in your order of service. If you have a chalice or a candle with you at home, I invite you to join us now in lighting our chalice. Please say with me the words of our chalice lighting printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. If this is your first time watching, 
We're glad you're here. You can follow along in the order of service which is available in the description of this video and is emailed to everyone who receives our newsletter, which you can get by signing up through a link that is in the order of service and video description. Today and just about every Sunday after worship, you're invited to join our Zoom coffee hour. At coffee hour, visitors and members are invited into breakout rooms where you can connect more deeply with two or three others. You'll find the link in the description of this video and in your order of service. And toward the end of service, Joe Chapeau will place it into our chat. Also in your order of service, you'll find an extensive list of upcoming opportunities to connect with others in this community and to learn and practice together. We hope you'll read through the offerings and join in any or all of them that are of interest to you. All of the events you'll see are hosted on Zoom with opportunities to join either via video or simply call in by phone. One offering that we want to call your attention to is this afternoon's humanist and non-theist gathering, which will feature guest presenter, Dr. Benjamin Madeley. Dr. Madeley will present on his book, An American Genocide, The United States and the California Indian Catastrophe, 1846 to 1873. This timely and important gathering will convene shortly after today's worship at 1 p.m. You can find the Zoom information on page 11 of your order of service. And this coming Wednesday, as every Wednesday, we invite you to join fellow UUs and other people of conscience as we gather for a socially distanced morning vigil on the steps of the church. We have banners and signs, but feel free to make and bring your own addressing those concerns you find most critical to raise. In your order of service, you'll also find information about ongoing spiritual formation offerings, such as morning meta meditation and evening yoga, as well as coming adult education offerings that will begin in the new year. I invite you to join me now as we deepen together into this morning's worship by singing together our meditation on breathing. The words are in your order of service. You can listen to our song leader, if this is the first time singing it, and then join in. We'll sing it through a few times as we deepen into worship together. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace when I breathe out. I'll breathe out love when I breathe in. I'll breathe in peace when I breathe out. I'll breathe out love when I breathe in. I'll breathe in. Breathe out. I breathe out. 
when I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. I invite you to join me now in our spoken, covenant, and sung doxology. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another. Recognizing there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes, we ring our gong today in honor of three such places of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first, as we have every Sunday since July of 2019, in honor of the seven children who lost their lives in federal custody in our detention camps and we let its ringing symbolically stand also for those adults who have lost their lives in these camps, those who remain in such camps, many separated from their families, and many now infected by COVID-19 or at great risk of infection. We ring our gong additionally once for the losses this week to COVID-19. This week, 70,818 people died of COVID-19 globally. Here in the United States, cases continue to surge, and 10,186 lost their lives to the disease in the United States alone. We hold in our hearts all of these losses, and also all who continue to risk their lives to provide essential service, those suffering from loss of job, whose lives are especially vulnerable to the disease, and all whose isolation and struggle through grief and loneliness is harder the longer this pandemic continues. We ring our gong one final time in recognition that this past Thursday marked a national day of mourning for Native Americans. We remember that for many, Thanksgiving Day is a potent reminder not of the power of gratitude and family gathering, but of the genocide of indigenous people and the systematic dispossession of peoples from their land. In our recognition of past harm, May we also reckon with the ways that these legacies of oppression continue into the present, remembering, as Ibrahim X. Kendi says, that the racial pandemic within the viral pandemic is disproportionately killing indigenous people. 
May we keep those we have named and their loved ones in our thoughts and in our prayers. And may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, howsoever we can. I invite you now to enter into a time of spoken and silent meditation. As you turn your attention inward in whatever way you are called, hear these words from the Reverend Lynn Cox. Spirit of life, ever adapting and renewing. We come together this morning with yearnings that do not match. We yearn for stability, for even one moment of feeling like we know what is going on for the ability to predict and prepare for what is coming next. Yet we also yearn for change. We ache for a world that turns aside from racism, violence, dehumanization and disregard for suffering. We pray for a change in the illness grief, isolation, incarceration, and vulnerability of our loved ones. 
we reach for the connections that will remind us that we are worthy as we are. And we reach for connections that will help us become our best selves. Hold us in the heart of both and. Cradle us in the mystery. Cherish us in the eternal presence of love and encourage us on a path of growth and development. As individuals and as a people, help us to become who we are called to be. Lead us to open pathways to deeper wisdom through reconciliation, self-respect and mutual respect, compassion, and owning and making amends for our mistakes. Source of wonder, move us to express and live in gratitude for the beauty of this world, the loving people in our lives, and this day of possibility. To this, we add the meditations of our hearts as we enter into a time of silence. Holding still whatever welled up in you in the silence. I invite you into another meditation through the melodies of Mishaverak, a blessing for all in need of healing. Mm-hmm. 
Tables have been pretty important in my life. Though I don't remember it so, I'm certain that as an infant I was often changed on the table. The table. Set the table. Whose turn is it to set the table? Is there company coming? Should we use the regular plates or grandma's fine china? Set extra plates at the table. We had a kitchen table with a leaf that fit in the middle to enlarge the surface and make room for invited guests. We ate at the table. We laughed at the table, studied at the table, cried at the table. The table with a blanket over it magically became a fort. Big events changed the look of the table. Gourds at Halloween, a cornucopia at Thanksgiving, pine cones and tinsel for Christmas, maybe a creche, painted eggs at Easter. Sometimes being summoned to the table was a chore. Countless times I wanted to play and hearing my name called loudly meant supper time dinner time. With two parents and four kids, it could get pretty cacophonous at the table. Of course, we all took turns setting and clearing the table. In later years, my mother would hand sew my clown costumes at her table. My mother and I had a conversation a while ago which blew my mind. She'd been reading a book with her church group about a place at the table, and her assertion was that no matter how we felt about a certain individual in the White House, we would still be obligated as Christians to offer him a seat at our table. Really, Mom? I don't know if I'm such a good Christian that I could get past my disgust with this man enough to share a table with him. I'm sure I'd have a very difficult time being civil with my tongue. As in my childhood, I'd probably wolf down my food and ask to be excused early, but she's right. If there was food to be shared, the offer would have to be made. My mother's table is where she handled all her voluminous correspondence until last week. Last week, my mother took a very bad fall and ended up on her kitchen floor in a puddle of blood. 
She didn't even remember feeling faint, just woke up on the floor. Luckily, she has one of those emergency alert buttons and EMTs arrived and got her to the hospital. Unfortunately, due to COVID-19, none of my three siblings can visit her, nor any of her friends. Fortuitously, my older brother David and his wife Ruth have just this year moved back to Vermont and they have a bedroom all ready for her when she finishes rehabilitation. Now my brother's table will become my mother's table. It has a very circle of life feeling to it. Sadly, she'll be losing some of her independence, yet happily, there is a safe and comfortable place for her and her cat, Sophie. I guess I can be happy that the next time we all see each other will be at a table I've never even seen before, a table ready to house its own dinners and puzzles and memories. Also, I wanted to take a moment to thank the congregation for all the prayers and candles you've lighted for her. Blessings. This morning, our offering will go to support the Sagora Te Land Trust, an urban indigenous woman-led land trust based in the San Francisco Bay Area that facilitates the return of indigenous land to indigenous people. Through the practices of rematriation, cultural revitalization, and land restoration, Sagora Te calls on native and non-native peoples to heal and transform the legacies of colonization, genocide, and patriarchy, and to do the work our ancestors and future generations are calling us to do. You can give online by pressing the donation button in the order of service or on our website. A link is also in the video description and in the chat. In the payment portal, please indicate if your gift is for the special offering, is a pledge payment, or a general donation. The offering will now be given and gratefully received.
Our reading this morning is titled, Perhaps the World Ends Here, by United States Poet Laureate and member of the Muskegee Nation, Joy Harjo. The world begins at a kitchen table. No matter what, we must eat to live. The gifts of the earth are brought and prepared, set on the table. So it has been since creation, and it will go on. We chase chickens or dogs away from it. Babies teeth at the corners. They scrape their knees under it. It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. At this table, we gossip, recall enemies and ghosts of lovers. Our dreams drink coffee with us as they put their arms around our children. They laugh with us at our poor, falling-down selves, and as we put ourselves back together once again at the table. This table has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun. Wars have begun and ended at this table. It is a place to hide in the shadow of terror, a place to celebrate the terrible victory. We have given birth on this table and have prepared our parents for burial here. At this table, we sing with joy, with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse. We give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at the kitchen table while we are laughing and crying eating of the last sweet bite. Thank you.
When I think of Thanksgiving, I think of pear salad. In spite of its name, there's no lettuce in pear salad, no dressing of any kind, no vegetables at all, actually. It is a salad only by that peculiar Midwestern definition where cookies and whipped cream count. You blend together some lime jello and Cool Whip and cream cheese and canned pears, and the result is a bouncy, gelatinous blob the color of spearmint toothpaste. It's entirely unclear whether pear salad fancies itself a dessert or a side dish, and I'm not sure I can rightly claim that it's tasty. But I have never been more excited to make and to eat pear salad as I was this past Thursday. With so much changed, with so many once taken for granted realities disrupted, the traditions we can maintain feel all the more precious. Other than pear salad, little about this Thanksgiving felt conventional. Instead, this past Thursday felt to me like a testament to the deep creativity and resilience that can rise to meet limitations. I was heartened to hear about Zoom gatherings of people from across the country and around the world, about extensive phone trees and text threads spanning generations, gatherings of two or three people with tables nevertheless ready to feed 10, the porch drop-offs and mailed care packages and small meals on opposite sides of garages and spread out across backyards. All of these different expressions of Thanksgiving gatherings reminded me of what's possible when we are forced to reimagine how we do things. This year forced us to ask, what of our familiar, comfortable Thanksgiving is worth preserving? And what of it might we need to reimagine or transform? A few years ago, the nostalgia of the season led me to dig through some of the large bound photo albums in my parents' living room. And there, sandwiched between the evidence of a 10th birthday party and a particularly snowy Midwestern winter, I came across a photo of a moment that I'd long since forgotten. The photo depicted an elementary school pageant. Some 30 second graders lined up on risers, mouths agape, suggesting the angelic and likely somewhat off-key harmonies that we must have been singing in the moment the photo was snapped. At first glance, the image was charming, evoking memories of seasonal crafts and homemade snacks and turtlenecks and times when we could pack into an auditorium without thinking twice. Looking closer, I noticed that all of the gathered children were adorned in homemade costumes of one or two types. Half of the assembly donning cardboard hats with painted yellow buckles, and the other half headdresses with feathers cut out from colorful construction paper. 
And in the photo, we were holding hands. We were enacting the story, the myth of the first Thanksgiving, a story that begins with the pilgrims arriving at Plymouth Rock in 1620 in search of religious freedom, then fast forwards to the following year, and after just a passing mention of the ways that the pilgrims had survived as a result of the kindness and know-how of the indigenous people of the area, the story maintains its zoomed-in focus on the pilgrims as they invite the unnamed indigenous people to the table to break bread. The crux of the myth centers on that shared meal where the parties are said to have celebrated the abundance of the harvest and the beginnings of a promising relationship of collaboration and mutual support. We now know that that foundational story is layered with painful inaccuracies, too innumerable almost to detail in full right now. Everything from the details of the food to the idealized depiction of the pilgrims to the erroneous representation of the gathering being defined by goodwill and mutual consent. Even more troubling than the errors in the story are the omissions. In most versions, the Wampanoag aren't even mentioned by name, and there's little or no acknowledgement that they had been stewards of that land for thousands of years. Nor is there mention of the lethal pandemic that tore through Wampanoag communities just a year later, or the massacres of neighboring people, the 700 women and men and children killed by those same settlers in the decades following. Or as David Silverman reminds in his book, This Land is Their Land, the chilling reality that some early pilgrim thanksgivings actually celebrated those same plagues and massacres of native people. And of course, the larger history of settler colonialism and genocide and dispossession of people from land has no place in the pageant version of the Thanksgiving story. These fallacies are increasingly well-known. Journalist Brett Anderson quips that articles debunking the Thanksgiving myth have become as common as cornbread recipes come mid-November. And that change in the conversation is something to be grateful for. But after a year where we've been called to a deeper reckoning with the United States' foundational relationship with white supremacy, and to a deeper understanding of the past and present consequences of institutional racism. Perhaps more is required of us. For we Unitarian Universalists, there is a particular mandate, not only that we reconsider Thanksgiving, as we called ourselves to in a 2016 resolution of the General Assembly, but that we acknowledge and reckon with our faith forebearers' role in promoting and developing the whitewashed version of a holiday. 
This week, the Reverend Susan Frederick Gray, president of our Unitarian Universalist Association, preached that an important piece of this work is examining and debunking the Thanksgiving myth and owning our tradition's role in its creation. We are called not just to remember, but to remember, to put back together a more whole version of the Thanksgiving story. To tell the parts of the story that are often glossed over or left out entirely, and to reckon with the role that this story has played in supporting the ongoing project of settler colonialism. One element of that reckoning, I think, is acknowledging why the myth of Thanksgiving has had such staying power, such appeal. Part of the reason, according to Chris Newell of the Akumwat Educational Initiative, is because the Thanksgiving story came into public consciousness decades after the event that it describes, intended as a unifying origin story that would promote nationalism following the Civil War. But there's another component, too, that I think is actually harder in some ways to reconcile. As shocking as it was to come across that photo depicting the very way that the Thanksgiving myth has been passed down through generations, it was even more troubling to remember that as a second grader, I loved not only the crafts and the songs from that day, but the story itself. The celebratory shared meal, the vision of people coming together across cultural differences to share in gratitude and thanksgiving. It's compelling. And the prevailing vision of a welcoming thanksgiving table is modeled in that image held up as a table where all, all are welcome, where we're invited or even required to connect across our differences. A table where our deep appreciation for the abundance of our lives together might transcend, if only for a meal, the forces that otherwise keep us apart. Could you hear that vision in Dennis's reflection? There's the vision of a table with such abundance to be shared, such a foundation in gratitude that it would require us to invite in even the most difficult person we can imagine. It's a beautiful vision. And I'm glad that many of us do our best to enact it in some way or another each year. But if our vision of a welcoming Thanksgiving table is rooted in a falsified origin story, one that obscures foundational violence, can it really be a welcome table at all? Our individual experiences of coming to the table are of course deeply particular shaped by each of our identities and personalities and relationships with others, making the rare moments where patterns emerge all the more instructive. On an afternoon in early December several years ago, a friend and I made our way across town to an acquaintance's 
queer potluck. We sat together on the floor, sharing in vegan mac and cheese and leftover sweet potato pie while the host invited some preliminary introductions. But before long, the conversation took a vulnerable turn. One person shared a heartbreaking story from time with family the week before. And without any prompting, half a dozen other people followed suit. While the details differed, the crux of these stories was the same. These were stories of painful family gatherings, stories of being invited to show up, but only partially, stories of leaving behind parts of oneself for the sake of keeping the peace or keeping others comfortable, some stories of being asked explicitly to do so. In these stories, people had been welcomed to the table but conditionally. Whether the condition was adapting one's authentic gender expression or just quietly stomaching painful comments couched as jokes, the welcome was partial at best. The stories shared that afternoon were a potent illustration of the ways that the vision of a welcoming Thanksgiving table falls short not only for the indigenous people at our tables, but for so many others too. I know that it is not just those of us who are LGBTQ who have had such experiences. When we put a magnifying glass on these failures, we can see that elements of the original Thanksgiving myth trickle into contemporary expressions of the holiday too the presumption that harmony requires that some concede or conceal parts of their wholeness, that assimilation ultimately supports unity, that politeness compels us to avoid acknowledging discord or conflict or harm beyond the table itself, that the dominant center must be preserved at all costs and thus that the burden to adapt and keep quiet falls to those at the margins. To the extent that our vision of the promise of the Thanksgiving table has its roots in a harmful myth that covers up a violent history, then perhaps that vision too needs a deeper address. As the Reverend Susan Frederick Gray concluded in her reflection about the Thanksgiving story, we must make visible and dismantle harmful narratives beginning with how they live in ourselves if we are truly to be about the work of liberation and justice. Now, I don't think that this requires that we abandon the most inspiring and beloved parts of the holiday altogether, but we have work to do to ground in the truth-telling and reparation that are required to heal the ongoing legacies of colonial violence. And that as we dismantle the destructive narrative at the heart of Thanksgiving, that we might need to intentionally look elsewhere for new narratives, for the vision of the welcome table that we long for. 
you might have noticed that the tables that were so artfully described in Dennis's reflection and in our reading by Joy Harjo were not Thanksgiving tables, but kitchen tables. They described tables that bear the brunt of everyday life, tables that hold paperwork and clown costumes and babies and gossip, tables that are capable of holding death and loss and change, too. These are tables that have room for whole selves and whole lives. And as in Joy Harjo's vision, tables that have room for brokenness, too, that can be places where we put ourselves back together again. Perhaps most importantly, these kitchen tables are host to all this stuff of life, not just once or twice a year, but day in and day out. What's potentially most harmful in the Thanksgiving myth is the way that it leaves out what came before and what came after. That even if the meal had been as harmonious as the myth would have us believe, that vision is shattered anyway by the lack of regard for the Wampanoag and indigenous people across the country that immediately followed on its heels. In much the same way, true reconciliation with that painful history requires acts of remembrance, repair, and solidarity that are consistent and continuous. Coming to the table is an ongoing practice. So how will we show up tomorrow and the day after that? How will we show up for our families and our neighbors and those that we do not know at all? In this moment, when our tables are definitively changed, how will we bring into being a renovated version of the welcome table? How will we keep coming to that table such that there is room for all of all of us? So that there is room for repair and healing and atonement, for joy and sorrow, for suffering and for gratitude, for the good stuff and the hard stuff and everything in between. In that spirit, please join me now in our final hymn number 155, Circle Round for Freedom.
So now in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us, out from within us. Be gracious unto us and give us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it.
The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.